Hello and welcome to a new and exciting episode of our podcast, Cato Convergence. With me today, a very special guest. John Bowles is the Chief Information Officer of Orvis, one of the largest accounting firms in the United States, who is also a Cato customer. Welcome, John. Hi, Yushay. Thanks for having me today. Before we get started, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your career in IT. I'm a family man. I've been married for 34 years to my lovely wife, Lori. I am a father of three. I, I have a son who's 29. His name's Tyler. I have twin daughters who are 21. They're both in college right now. Hopefully, they'll be graduating uh, in the spring and uh, be off of dad's payroll, but we'll see. I've been working in IT since uh, about the mid-1980s. I, my first job was a programmer. I wrote software code during the day and went to night school to finish get my undergraduate degree and added to that skill set uh, network engineering. And from there, began taking different roles as manager, director, and uh, just various leadership roles. And uh, I've worked across several industries. I've not just been in professional services as I am now. I've worked in healthcare and manufacturing and wholesale distribution and retail. So kind of a broad uh, foundation. And I'm currently the CIO here at Forvis. I started with the firm um, on my 26th year. And when I started here, I was the entire IT department, which is kind of a funny story. That's kind of an indicator of how much we've grown. And now I have a staff of about 170 folks on our team. $70 million a year budget. And uh, yeah, so seen a lot of change over those years. Yeah, well, that's actually an, uh, uh, an amazing journey. And you mentioned uh, you're the CIO of Forvis, but the audience may not know that Forvis is a relatively new entity because it was formed uh, as a merger between two pretty large accounting firms uh, to form a company that is now the number eight on the top 100 accounting firms uh, in the U.S. Maybe you can describe a little bit the Forvis business. What are you offering? What are you operating from, uh, et cetera? Yeah, so we we like to make sure everyone understands this, this merger between these two large and very successful firms, one uh, DHG and the other BKD, is considered a merger of equals. We talk about it that way because both firms were doing really quite well on their own. And, and I think the professional services industry, and specifically the accounting industry, has been a place where you see a lot of merger and acquisition activity. And, and we've had that for years. That's not a new a new thing. It's something that's been happening for a while. But in, in order to move up market and to take on larger clients and uh, to do larger engagements, you, you need to have a, a appropriately sized firm that's comprised of lots of smart people with all the right skills and, and resources. So, you know, that sort of drives the whole reason why two firms like Dixon Hughes Goodman and BKD would merge to begin with. Neither firm was doing badly on their own. They're doing quite well. But if your goal is to continue to grow the organization and to become a global entity and to continue to grow outside of the United States, you know, you have to have the right amount of capacity and resources to do that. So that is kind of the reason behind why the, the two organizations decided to merge. 
and our business really kind of is divided in broadly speaking and down into three categories. We have tax and assurance and audit and then advisory services. Each roughly approximates about a third of the revenue in the organization. We go to market through our industries and services. We have 10 primary industries and uh, three, broadly speaking, service lines. Currently, uh, uh, we have 70 locations. We have uh, an office in London and getting ready to open one in Toronto and talking about opening one in Singapore. About 6,000 partners and staff across our footprint. And uh, at the time of the effective data of our merger, which was in June of this year, we were doing together about one and a half billion in net fees per year. Oh, that's uh, it's a pretty sizable business. And uh, this merger of equal is, uh, is also very interesting and we'll get to it later. But I want to start kind of from the beginning. So the relationship between Cato and Dixon U started a couple of years ago. And I want to talk a little bit about your digital transformation journey. What was your architecture looking like before you started the change to this cloud-based networking and security platform? And then how did you go through the motions of thinking about it and maybe executing a project and ultimately how you deployed it? Just, just tell us about this first step. And this is still in the Dixon News days before the merger. Yeah, well, as I've already alluded to, I've been here a long time, so I've seen a lot of change and we've had to reinvent ourselves many times along the way. And I think that's pretty common today. But, you know, the way we really started was kind of an architecture where all of our or the vast majority of our technology resided in one of our offices. So every office was an island of technology. We, we really couldn't put much pressure on our wide area network back then because, you know, we just didn't have a lot of bandwidth. And, and then over time, we decided what made sense would be to pull those services out of those offices into leverage Citrix or RDS type thin client computing to deliver those services. And at the time it was kind of innovative. No one else was doing it. And you kind of got a strange look when you told people what you're up to. That was sort of our step in that direction, our one of our early steps. And then uh, as we upgraded our wide area network technologies, we implemented a pretty robust MPLS network. Uh, I think everyone in, who's been doing this for any length of time has probably had an MPLS network at some point in their transformation journey. And that served our needs fairly well. It was super expensive and pretty rigid, not very flexible, and it took you forever to provision services. So that that was always a challenge. And you know, the architecture was kind of complicated. We also had Every office was peering into the internet on the, at, from the office level. We weren't backhauling our internet traffic. We did at one time and we evolved from that. It was just too much of a bottleneck and a little too complicated to make everyone happy. And, you know, another step in that direction was to implement DIA or broadband internet services at the office level. And from there, I, I think it, it, transformationally speaking, it was it just was a natural progression to move into more and more cloud-based uh, services. And when it was time to look at what's next for us with our network and where do you go from MPLS, that was when we started looking at SD-WAN technologies. So that's kind of what got us started in terms of looking at SASE SD-WAN stuff. So at the time, were you thinking about this problem as a networking plus security problem, or was it mostly around 
the resilient capabilities that SD1 has provided and security was a kind of an after effect. How do you think about it kind of in this phase zero or phase one of the project? All of our technology decisions are a result of trying to solve a business problem or provide a business solution or a business outcome. We were growing fast and, you know, the technical landscape that we were working on was changing at a high rate of speed, in part because our service providers were providing us with new new versions of technologies all the time. We had to embrace, and we were, through mergers and acquisitions, we were bolting on new locations and new firms that brought with them their own sets of services that some were redundant and some were new. So trying to keep up with all that was proving to be increasingly difficult. So we realized how important it was to us to be able to effectively support this growth and the rapid change in our industry. And we had to do something that allowed us to break free of the gravitational pull of that so that we, this didn't become the only thing we could do, right? We're, you know, we still had to work with the firm to develop new services and we couldn't just constantly stay on the treadmill of trying to assimilate new firms and all the work that came with it. We had to develop a better way to do that. So one of the elements in our resultant strategy was to try to leverage the cloud more, improve our staffing model as a result uh, to by leveraging managed services too. And, and that kind of brought us to this place of needing to consider what made sense when it was time to replace the MPLS network. So we started looking at a lot of the vendors in the SD-WAN space. At the time, we didn't even know SASE was a thing. I think we came to know of Cato Networks, not through the SASE moniker, but through the SD-WAN moniker and have since learned. So it really became necessary for us to adopt some of these different approaches to delivering services that allowed us to scale and be agile. When you think about a couple of the directions you were considering, there are some architectures that are based on edge appliances that are delivering both SD-WAN and security. Some of them are from large vendors. Uh, Then there is the split between an SD-WAN edge and a cloud-delivered security. Were you considering these alternatives and how do you think about kind of the pros and cons? Why why did you ultimately decide to go in, in the direction that you did? We realized that we needed to be able to keep up with the love, the rate of growth, as I've already mentioned. And we also knew that we needed a scalable model that also allowed us to maximize and leverage our staff well. And no one felt good about the possibility of having to maintain a small army of network engineers to maintain a very complicated environment. So we were really trying to find a, a simple solution that allowed us to be responsive and agile and that could scale without us having to redesign or refactor our our network. And we needed it to be performant and consistent, regardless of what country or location we might deploy to. And, And we were very keen to minimize our risk and improve our compliance management. So when you take all those factors into consideration, I think it eliminates a lot of the other types of approaches where you know, that you had mentioned. So those are the key drivers for us in terms of why we chose Cato and 
and the things that were important to us at the time we made that decision about two and a half years ago now, I think. Right. So, yeah, that has been a partnership that has been uh, ongoing and, and a bit of growing. And we'll talk about that when we talk about the merger. Just to kind of uh, to give us a sense, uh, what's the staff that is actually running your network? If you can talk about that, how many people do you actually have to run the, uh, the, the overall network? We have uh, two very different networks that we've had to integrate when we did this merger. And the staff leverage model is a little different for each of the two networking environments. Uh, Cato allows us to really require very little labor overhead to manage it and maintain it. We really like it for that reason, amongst others. And the network on the other side required a few more people to manage and maintain it. I'm not going to mention the name of the network. I don't think I want to uh, say anything that might be perceived as me uh, casting shade or disparaging the other vendor and technology stack, but it requires a few more people to manage that. Uh, And so, yeah, it's been a challenge to be fair. And, And one of the things that we really are trying to get our hands around here, one of the things that's pretty important and on the top of my priority list right now is getting everyone on a single network technology. So we're really looking to put the legacy BKD side of the firm onto the Cato network along with the legacy DHG side. But the staff models, the the amount of labor it takes to maintain the two networks is, is, I think, materially different. We hope to benefit from everyone being on Cato. Got it. That's actually uh, a very interesting uh, point. And one of the reasons I uh, kind of asked you to, to come on the podcast to really understand how as a CIO you're thinking about this process. Obviously, it has different dimensions. It has a technical dimension, but it also has a human dimension and a cultural dimension. How is, does a CIO approach uh, this thing of getting alignment around this idea? How do you... Um, bring the two sides together? Yeah, that's a big question, to be honest. There are a lot of, lot there to unpack. So, you know, I think in the beginning, it, you have to embrace the reality that two teams that are learning to trust one another, <laughs> and that's important, right? A good team is built on the foundation of trust. And you can't really shortcut the trust building process. You know, trust is it were an equation, I'd say it would be consistent behavior plus time equals trust, right? You can't, there's no shortcutting either of the two elements to that simple equation. So it just takes time. So the willingness to listen to one another and understand why decisions were made, they were, that's a that's an important part. People feel like they need to tell you their story. You need to understand where they're coming from, why why they chose to do what they did, why we chose to do what we did, and understand that and hear people out. So as a starting point, understanding the thought processes and the decision-making steps behind the decisions that were made is really important. And, and people want to know that, they want you to know that they had a, the way that you come to their decision is through a very orthodox and, and logical process. And so we, we had to listen and hear each other out. And that was important. And then know that change really frightens people. And uh, being in the technology transformation business, change is something I'm familiar with and work with all the time, but not everyone does. And 
making changes difficult. We had, I have to spend a lot more time talking about the why behind the reason to change and what that change looks like. And when you don't have as much trust or relationship capital, you just have to spend more time talking about the why. So a lot of these decisions in the beginning just require spending time getting everyone on some kind of consensus, same page. Fortunately, with the great team that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of here, that's been a very straightforward process. People are pretty logical and you just work through it logically and people kind of draw their own conclusion of what the right outcome is or the right answer is. So I'm probably vastly oversimplifying this process, but it, it's very it's a very challenging problem or as you might imagine, because there's so much that needs to be changed in an organization after you've done the merger of the size of BKD and DHT forming Forbis. So you have to support the growth of the firm while also establishing consistent standards and and building a common infrastructure. And we like we jokingly say it's like driving the car down the highway and changing the tire, one of the tires at the same time. So not easy to do. Just in terms of um, kind of, I would say, the primary use cases that you look at to enable the combined organizations, uh, organizations. one is obviously connecting the locations. Basically, is the idea to basically send them sockets and Kato sockets is our edge devices and connect them to the network? Or is there a more elaborate transition strategy? Uh, How do you think about kind of extending or merging the networks just if you have any any kind of insights into how you do this, how do you actually do this uh, in a gradual or a, in a safe way for the business? Yeah, well, there is going to be some technical overlap. I, you know, there's no getting around that. And there's going to be a period of time where you're going to run as you're deploying Cato. We are. You're still going to be running the old legacy. SD-WAN, SASE technology that was in place. So the ideal scenario of just turning the old network off on a Friday night and turning the new one on a few hours later, that's not very practical. You can't really do it that way if you're trying to also make sure that your users can still have access to services and the firm can still provide quality products and services to clients, right? So there's going to be some overlap and you're going to have to be okay with that. But uh, we're phasing in our um, Cato sockets to all of our offices. We're looking to deploy them in a high availability array so that, you know, we can lose one network circuit, but yet not lose our service. That's really important. So we're picking our offices based on uh, a lot of reasons, but some of them are in terms of the sequence and the order in which we do them. The ones where I think their offices are smaller and we, we don't have embedded IT staff. We're looking to assimilate them into the Forbis core first, I think, because there's a need there where you know, they, we can provide our virtual service model more effectively to them if they're, we're all on the same network. So everyone would probably have a different business driver for their sequencing of, of their implementation model. But for us, that's the one that we are using to drive our implementation sequence and phasing in the Cato implementation. So when beyond locations, you know, very um, common driver or a business requirement is the remote access. 
I guess in your business, the problem with remote access is really fundamental. I guess you're working maybe also from client locations. And in general, these are a lot of knowledge workers that need to work from anywhere. What was your strategy until now? And how do you think about uh, kind of the next generation remote access for the uh, employees? Before the merger, we had just started, we were early in the process of deploying the Cato VPN client to all of our workstations. So what I am anticipating us doing doing here, Yashai, is to continue that process and deploy the, the Cato VPN client across the, all 6,000 of our people, their workstations, their laptops. We're probably shooting to have that done um, by middle summer, June to August of 2023, you know, we have to work around um, our tax season, which starts in around January 15th and runs through the middle of April, as you know. And so we, we wouldn't be implementing it during that time. We consider that a time of change freeze where we frown on any non-essential change during those change freeze windows. So we'll pick that effort up and uh, push hard on it after tax season, the middle of April. And Hope to have 6,000 of those VPN clients rolled out by August or so of, of this coming summer. Yeah, that will be a pretty streamlined process. Uh, we have uh, many customers with uh, thousands, many thousands of uh, users. And the ease of rollout is actually very, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hallmark. Get a deployment. And obviously, it will give you this consistent uh, policy and, and the controls around all access across all organization. So if I go from here and talk a bit about security, how do you view your security posture? I mean, you know, what kind of capabilities or risks you are worried about uh, and how you've been handling them before and how you think about the merger, kind of get, getting everybody on the same security posture and what capabilities do you see yourself kind of thinking about in the, in the coming years uh, to strengthen the overall uh, resiliency of the organization. Well, I don't want to talk with too many specifics here about our security posture for obvious reasons, but as we grow and become more of a global firm, we need to be aware that that increases our attack surface area. So that is a risk that we continue to manage and not lose sight of. We have to effectively protect the firm against not just our larger physical footprint, but also other uh, sophisticated attack vectors. And, you know, there's so many, as you know, and they're just growing more sophisticated and more numerous by the day, it seems. So there's that. And I think we also have to keep in mind that we also, as a firm that practices in a lot of industries and being a highly regulated industry ourselves, the accounting industry, that we have to be compliant with a multitude of compliance standards. So that factors into our thinking about you know, what is our um, security stack and our security strategy look like going forward. We also are asked to produce uh, various types of compliance assurance reports to our clients that, that we do business with. We do business with some very large ones and many of them you've heard of. And they want us to be able to produce things like SOC 2 reports and things. So we need systems and platforms and controls in place that allow us to, to do that. 
And, you know, we're also realizing that, you know, we're working with a lot more third party workers, uh, um, some in North America, some in, uh, from other continents. And that also affects what our security posture needs to look like. So there's there's a lot of things that go into our grand strategy around what the security strategy at Forbes look like. In terms of um, uh, your own SOC, do you run a SOC today or um, or is this still uh, done by IT security as, a, as part of their job? When we get our SOC audit done, we, we bring in a third party organization to do that work for us. We need to be able to establish independence in that work. And um, our clients need to know that a trusted third party has, has done, the, done the SOC compliance audit. Got it. Okay. Uh, maybe um, my last question about from a digital transformation perspective is cloud migration. How are you with, your, with the, the cloud journey in general? Uh, do you have still an on-premise data center or are you moving to the cloud? What's your strategy around uh, around cloud data centers, basically, on-premise data centers? We do have a, a few colo facilities. Maybe you would or wouldn't say that's an on-prem data center, but we do. Um, we had one with, uh, have one with the legacy DHG side, and we have two from the legacy BKD side. So for me, we, we look at this whole notion of where do you run a run things at, at the workload level. Some workloads, it makes sense to run them in a public cloud like Azure or AWS, but some don't. And you know, at the end of the day, we, we do have to pay for these things and, and the economics do matter. They aren't the only component of it is that you have to consider when you're making these decisions, but they're, they're certainly a, a very relevant one that you, that especially working in an accounting firm, you know, costs do matter. So we do have to keep that in mind. But where we can, we seize every opportunity when it presents itself to move a workload to the cloud, either because it's a software as a service that we're able to leverage or because we can leverage some of the native Azure AWS cloud capabilities. But at the end of the day, we do not run everything in the cloud. I don't know that we ever will. Things might change such that I would say that we would. But in a very real way, I think there will always be workloads that we just need to run out of our one of our colo facilities. Yeah, I, I don't know if you kind of when when you thought about it when you deployed Cato, but one of the things that you really emphasize to customers is that Cato isn't just forward looking, but it's also backward looking. So our architecture treats a workload anywhere exactly the same way. So you get the ZTNA access and the security inspection and the performance improvements. On the wide area network, uh, east-west, or uh, to the cloud, and this actually gives customers the freedom to choose where they want to run things. And sometimes, with, the, with some of the offerings uh, on the market, they really make an assumption that everything will be in the cloud at the end of the day, and they don't worry about uh, what is kind of left uh, on-prem. And we actually have a different opinion on this, so I think that's great that we can actually support. The place where you find the most appropriate to run the workload as opposed to being on the, in the cloud because that, that's where everybody's going. So I think that's a great uh, thing, especially since you are saying that some of the, these workloads may never go to the cloud at the end of the day. 
So uh, I think we're getting close to uh, the end of this very interesting conversation. I think uh, I'm going to give you, I'm going to congratulate on, on this ongoing process, but still in, in a, in an amazing feat to put these kind of complex organizations together. Uh, maybe we can close with a couple of tips from you, maybe one professional, uh, to people that are really looking at this transformation journey. What do you think they should think about before and during they are thinking through this SDN SASE direction? And maybe the other uh, tip would be uh, how you grow your career in IT when you look backwards. You know, what would you have done differently or better uh, if you had a chance? I'd say all technology decisions are made in the context of a business need or a, a business outcome you're, you're trying to achieve. So start by thinking in terms of what business outcomes you're looking to, to achieve. What are the capabilities that your organization needs to be competitive and to grow? So don't bypass that. That's an important step. And, you know, once you've thought in terms of business outcomes and business capabilities, take seriously the, the effort around developing the right governance and processes. Uh, you, know, you need to align your, um, your IT organization with the larger business organization that you're serving. And that's a very important thing. It's easy to overlook that step. And also realizing that make sure you have the right skills that you need in order to align with the business outcomes you're trying to get to. That's a challenge today. As we all know, there's a, a shortage of key IT skills in the marketplace. So, but that doesn't mean you still don't need to wrestle with that. You need to understand what what your skilling for your people looks like and how do you get there? Is it a reskilling and upskilling? And what are the what approach? That's important. And and then the you know the fun part uh, here is talking about your technology you need to also align so that you can get the right business outcomes or capabilities you're after. I think that's important. So. And then, you know, once you've done all that hard work, then we like to take an iterative or an agile approach to executing and getting stuff done. I mean, there's there's always a large part of the pie chart that is labeled as I don't know what I don't know. So oftentimes we have a saying here at Forbes, we don't want to sacrifice progress on the altar of perfection. (laughs) If you wait till you have what you think is all the answers to all your questions, you probably won't get very far in terms of executing on anything. So you have to get comfortable with getting enough information to establish your general heading and make sure you're moving in the right direction and then iterate through that effectively. We find that tends to allow us to get more stuff done here at uh, at Forbes. So that would be sort of a tip on the digital transformation journey for us. And then in terms of career growth in IT and what guidance would I offer? You know, I've been doing this a long time, as I've already mentioned, and there's a couple things that come to mind here. I think I would just remind folks that if they'll pursue learning opportunities and skill development, as their primary thing they're looking for when they look for an IT job, the compensation part will follow. And uh, I always cringe that people tend to get that inverted and look at this through the compensation lens first. Uh, Focus on learning and skill development and the compensation will come. Um, And develop a passion for learning. I don't think you can be an effective technologist without loving to learn. And that's important because things are changing so much that 
you're just going to need to put yourself in a position to be well read. And that's a big part of it. I think, you know, be well read in many areas, uh, but you can't go deep in every area. So you're going to have to pick a few spots uh, that you might specialize or go deep in. You can't be great at everything, but you can certainly be well read in many areas. And then I think maybe finding a mentor or coach to help you with your blind spots. We all have blind spots. And, you know, the, the irony is that you don't even realize it's a blind spot by definition. So find someone who can help you with that. That can get in the way, I think, for people. And maybe another one that comes to mind is give back and share what you know, support others on their own journey. I think those are the things that come to mind when you are asking me to give tips about career growth in IT. I think these are uh, wise words. Definitely come from a huge amount of experience. I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, discuss the merger, the technology decisions, the roadmap. I want to thank you for being a Cato customer. We mentioned in this podcast several technologies by Cato, if you're interested. Uh, pay us a visit at CatoNetworks.com. And with that, uh, John, I'd like to thank you again for participating and uh, we're looking forward to see uh, our audience in future episodes. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Have a great day.